Daniel chapter 8, and this is our third week, I believe it is, in the prophetic section of Daniel. We covered chapters 1 through 6 in Sunday school, and it was kind of historic. We were looking at uh, Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, them being in the court of the kings of uh, Babylon, and then uh, Daniel in the court of the king of the Medes. And so whenever we get to chapter 7, we turn uh, kind of prophetic in our leaning here. And 7 through 12 uh, will be prophetic. And so in chapter 7, we spent two weeks, and Daniel had a vision. He had a dream. And uh, uh, we went through that. And I just want to go back for just a second. I want to reemphasize uh, why we're going into and studying prophecy. A lot of people... I get bogged down in it, wanting just for curiosity's sake or uh, maybe for the sake of pride or whatnot. And I don't want to get into that and trying to uh, pick apart all the prophecies and try to make it as if I've got some kind of uh, insight or any window into things that anyone else doesn't have. I don't want to take this and get so engrossed and focused on future events that I'm not concerned about uh, the events right now. But what we do whenever we study prophecy is that it does tell us what's coming. That's one of the reasons, but I think that's one of the minor reasons. But one of the main reasons to study prophecy is that it shows us that God is in control and God has a plan. Because as we're studying through prophecy, we find that much of it has already been fulfilled, and then there'll be uh, some of it that hasn't been yet, but we can take heart and know that whatever hasn't been will be fulfilled just the same as what already has been. And so we see that God is in control and that he has a plan. He's telling us what he's going to do before it happens, because oftentimes what we see in prophecy, if you were the one that was going through it, you would say, well, it doesn't seem like God's much in control. We find whenever the children of Israel went into uh, exile, into captivity, there were plenty of prophecies warning that was going to happen. And so since they were warned it was going to happen, uh, if they hadn't had that warning, they would have said, whoa, what's going on here? We're supposed to be God's chosen people. Why is this happening? But the prophets had told them ahead of time why it was going to happen uh, and how long it was going to last. And so that gives us another truth about prophecy is that whenever we're studying prophecy, it is uh, generally focused on judgment and deliverance. And so it's not just picking out lottery numbers. It's not trying to foretell the future. It's not like the psychic hotline or something. But God is uncovering his plan for the future in regards to the judgment of his people and the deliverance of his people. And that kind of carries through all of it. Whenever he was prophesying, uh, the things that I'd already alluded to a moment ago, uh, the children of Israel being carried away captive, he says, you're going to be judged. You're going to be carried away captive. I'm going to let your enemies have the best of you. The reason why is because you have rejected my laws and my commands. You've turned your back on me. You've served false gods and you have, uh, you have put so many other things before me, and so I'm going to take those things away from you, put you in captivity where you have to turn back to me, call upon me once again, and then I'm going to deliver you from that, and you're going to uh, be stronger and better because of it, basically. And so it is uh, judgment and deliverance, and that's generally what we find in prophecy. And so anyway, I said we want to see that God has a control and a plan, but it also strengthens our faith in God and in God's word because we see that God is saying what he's going to do before he does it, right. then he does it. Right. And he's doing it on a major scale. He's doing it between uh, countries. He's doing it between kingdoms. He's taking empires and building them up and tearing them down. And we look at it from a human perspective and say, well, men are doing that. But then we find that God's telling about it ahead of time. And so any way about it, he has some control and some knowledge in it. And so we can grow into despair today whenever we see the corruption that's taking place in governments and we can see the scandals that are happening. We can see wars and hear the rumors of wars and all these things going on around us. But then as we study the scriptures and we study prophecy, we realize that God has his hand on all things. It doesn't mean that God makes the evil happen but that he can even work the evil together to work out his plans, just as uh, the nation's going into captivity. 
uh, was a form of chastisement or correction to bring them back to him. And so God can use these things to bring about his plan. And oftentimes these things are a result of sin and disobedience that comes into the judgment aspect of it. But anyway, it strengthens our faith in God and it strengthens our faith in his word. So as we're reading through his word, we realize that this couldn't have been written by mere men, mere mortals. It couldn't just be the conjuring up of somebody's imagination, but it actually has to be the inspired word of God because these things were written before they happened, sometimes uh, centuries before they happened, and they were quite specific and they were fulfilled to the letter. Mankind can't do that. We talked about uh, just recently here how Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his uh, death on the cross, his resurrection, just the events of Jesus on this earth fulfilled over 300 specific prophecies and fulfilled them to the letter. And we see that that kind of thing could not be done by men, no matter how intelligent they are, no matter how well connected and well studied they are, man can't make those kind of predictions. And so as we're looking in Daniel, Daniel's prophecies are so specific that for, uh, for a long time, people rejected them and said there's no way, the skeptics rejected them, so there's no way that this was written before time because he is calling out kingdoms, he's calling out uh, moves on the world stage hundreds of years before uh, these empires ever existed. Before these countries were ever well known on the world stage, Daniel is saying this is going to be this country is going to become an empire. This is going to be the characteristics of this empire. This is how it's going to last, and this is how it's going to be defeated. And this is who's going to defeat it. And this is what their characteristics is going to be. And this is how they're going to do. And so they're so specific that people, that skeptics, said there's no way that Daniel wrote this as prophecy. But instead, somebody else wrote it later on and tried to pass it off as prophecy. They tried to do it after the fulfillment and say that it was before the fulfillment. And I told you that that, that was all uh, done away with. That was all quieted down whenever they found copies of Daniel's writings that predated the fulfillment of the prophecies, that were even translated into other languages before the fulfillment of the prophecies. Okay. And so with that, we look at this and we find out that the Bible isn't just some storybook. It's not a fairy tale. It's not some uh, fictional work that was out of the mind and the hearts of men, but it is the very word of God. And he's put plenty of proof and evidence in his word to show us if we are willing to look at it and if we're willing to uh, consider it, that it truly is a God-breathed, God-inspired book. It's not uh, not on par with all of these other uh, man-made writings, but instead this is of God. And so that increases our faith in it. And so whenever we realize these things, we say, okay, all these have already been fulfilled. The ones that aren't fulfilled, when it talks about the Lord coming back, whenever it talks about uh, him setting up his kingdom, whenever it talks about him preparing a place for us and him coming and receiving us into himself, whenever it's talking about all these other things, say, well, that's got to be true too. And so it bolsters our faith in God, in God's plan, in God's word, all of these things. And so uh, the last thing I want to say just in focusing, uh, or not focusing on kind of a general uh, foundation for this study, is that generally when we're reading prophecy in Scripture, it's going to center on Israel. Okay, If you read a direction in prophecy, generally it is speaking in regards of Israel. If it says to the west, it's talking about to the west of Israel. It's talking to the east, it's talking to the east of Israel. It's not, not talking about Ireland. Yeah. Okay? So when we're reading it, it's like, oh, to the east. Well, what's to the east of Ireland? Well, maybe it's Great Britain. To the west, well, that must be over America because that's the next thing ever, right? But no, it's in relation to Israel because that is kind of God's focal point there. That's his point of orientation in these prophecies. Okay. And so that gets us a little bit of a base work, a little understanding why we study it, what it deals with, and what its reference point is. Okay? And so in chapter 7, we saw the five kingdoms uh, spanning from Daniel's time until Christ. And uh, Daniel lived through the first kingdom. The, the uh, Babylonian kingdom lasted about 70 years. And then he lived into the second kingdom, which was the Medo-Persian kingdom. And he only experienced the first part of it. Uh, the Greek and Roman empires were still far into the future. And then the final part of that kingdom, the Roman Empire, uh, 
uh, would be uh, the final part of the Roman Empire is going to be where the Antichrist rules and reigns during the tribulation period. So that's something that's still in the future that we've seen, uh, like I said, in chapter number seven. And he's going to be ruling and reigning until he's destroyed by Christ and Christ defeats him and rules. And that'll be the final kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. And most of the attention in chapter seven is on uh, Rome and it's on Christ with the Medo-Persian and the Greek empires just being uh, skimmed over. So today what we're going to be looking at is uh, Daniel getting further insight from God into these other two kingdoms, the Medo-Persian and into uh, the, the Greek empire. And the significance about this is this is a transition from a eastern power to a western power. Up until this point in history, there has been uh, a dominance by the Eastern cultures, by the Asianic cultures. And so you have Babylon, you have Assyria, you have the Medo-Persians, you have all these different groups, and they are from the Middle East and the East. And they are the empires that are dominating over the world at that time. But then at this point in time that we're going to see today, the power shifts from the east to the west, and the Greeks are going to take control, and then eventually the Romans will take control, and the Romans are going to rule all the way up through uh, until four or 500 AD, and then still to this day, the world is kind of dominated by the west. And we're going to find that even in the time of the tribulation, that the Antichrist raises up from the west. And you may remember I said just a moment ago that God orients things around uh, Israel. And so this is going to be talking about who is in control, not just of the world, but who is the one influencing and reigning over Israel. Okay. And so the Greeks are going to have control of Israel for a while. Then the Romans are going to have control over Israel for a while. And even today, uh, Israel is refounded in 1948. Who was it that put Israel back in place as a nation besides God? Any of y'all remember your, your world history there? It was the West. After World War II, whenever everything was settled down, after all of the fightings and things that happened there, it was Europe and Europe's allies that decided to create a new country or recreate a new country of Israel to let the Jews have their land once again, right? And who is the primary uh, influence over Israel to this day? The West. If you were to travel to Israel, there is a lot of Western influence on it. And so the reason I bring all this out is in this chapter that's before us in Daniel chapter 8, he is going to see this transition of power between the east to the west. And so it is a huge pivotal point in history, and it's also a huge pivotal point for Israel as a nation. And so anyway, with that, I want to uh, go ahead and read Daniel chapter number 8. We're going to read the first nine verses of this to get us started. And remember, this is prophecy, so we're going to be seeing symbolic language and things. Uh, he's going to have some wild dreams and... Uh, if we were to have some of these crazy dreams like this, we might want to get our heads checked, right? But in Daniel chapter 8, verse number 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of the king Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was in Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Uli. And then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west out of the face of the whole earth, 
and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him uh, come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it uh, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven, and out of one came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And so in this passage, he's dreaming about a goat and a ram. And they're kind of weird-looking goat, or kind of a weird-looking ram and a weird-looking goat. It says that the ram has uh, two horns and one's bigger than the other. And the, then the goat comes, and he's only got one notable horn between his eyes that's coming up. So I guess he was the original unicorn, right? Oh, what's going on? He would have been a weird-looking goat. But it says that Daniel was dreaming these things. Uh, he had them in a vision. He was in Babylon. But in his vision, he was kind of transported to Shushan the palace. We read about that in Esther. That's the capital of the Persian Empire. And so he's already, while he's sitting under uh, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, the Persians haven't taken over yet. The Medes haven't taken over yet. Daniel is still in Babylon, the first kingdom. But God is revealing to him who the next one's going to be. He's kind of giving him a an insight into who the next employer will be because he's going to end up working for them, right? And so he's transported to Shushan the palace in his dream. He's seeing these things going on between these rivers and uh, this land of Elam, and he notices that this ram comes up. And, and as we continue through this chapter, the Daniel is lamenting and saying, well, I don't know what in the world this dream means. And God sends an angel to him and reveals to him the meaning of the dream. We find that down in verses 19 through 23. He says, And he said, Behold, I will make thee to know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. That word indignation, that's talking about whenever the wrath of God is revealed, whenever his judgment comes down. Also what we call the great tribulation. It says, For at that time appointed the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas uh, four stood upon it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are uh, come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding of dark sentences shall stand up. And so his dream, there was a ram, had two horns, a smaller horn, and then a larger horn came up last. Uh, it says there it was Media and Persia. Uh, it started out as a united kingdom between the Medes and the Persians. The Medes began to be the power of it at first. They were the ones that came and conquered Babylon. They were the ones that were in charge whenever uh, Daniel first started serving the Medes under the new kingdom. But as time went on, the Persians became more powerful. That was after Daniel's life. That was after Daniel was dead. Okay? So we're getting into prophecy, right? And so anyway, uh, the Persians would become more powerful. And so that horn was larger than the first one. And so that was that ram that would come. It says that he was pushing toward the north and to the west and to the south. He was expanding his kingdom. None could stand before him. And as he was pushing toward the west, he was going from Asia toward Europe. And he was starting to get over on the Grecian lands. Okay? And so that's what he was doing. And for a time, there was no one that could stand before the Median Persian Empire. And it lasted for about 200 years. So long after Daniel was dead and gone, this prophecy takes place. But at the end of that 200 years, uh, there is another kingdom that rises up. By the way, just a little significant point there. The symbol of the Media and Persian kingdom, which Daniel was not in, which hadn't taken over yet, 
their symbol and what they had on their armor and as they were riding out into battle was, guess what? A ram. Something interesting, isn't it? But anyway, we're talking about the goat now. After the ram came a goat, it says, and it says that the goat came and he came so fast that he wasn't even touching the ground as he came and he had a notable horn uh, between his eyes. Uh, the horns in scripture are referring to power, to authority, okay? And so in verse number 21, it says that the rough goat is the king of Greece. And that king is going to come and he is going to overthrow the media and Persian empire. The fact that the goat as it's coming isn't even touching the ground means that it's going to happen swiftly. Okay, the one horn is its first ruler, the Bible tells us here. And so with that, we have the conquest of Alexander the Great. And you study that in history class. I can remember being in history and learning about Alexander the Great and his conquests and things. And he conquered land more swiftly than any other kingdom and king in history. And so that's that idea of that goat going in the, the, its feet, not even touching the ground as it's going. And by the time he was 32 years old, he had defeated the reigning power of the Medes and the Persians. He had expanded the kingdom. He had taken the power from the east and put it into the west by the time he was 32 years old. He took in just a few years' time, completely routed the Medes and the Persians. He had conquered all of the land back that they had taken from the Greeks. And then he had expanded the empire greatly. As he was going about in conquering he was going from city to city, from country to country, just knocking them out one at a time. He would go, he would conquer, he would get some things in place, and then he would move on, oftentimes not even setting up enough infrastructure to put things in order after he left. He was pillaging, he was murdering, he was leaving piles of dead bodies behind him. And that's what Alexander the Great was doing. Oftentimes it was chaos whenever he was gone because he had... Uh, taken out the power. He had taken it over without actually establishing governments behind. And so it was swift. It was chaotic. It was uh, very powerful. But it says that that horn was going to be broken off. And as I said, Alexander the Great died at 32 years old. Uh, and really, no one mourned his death whenever he passed. That's a shame, isn't it? One of the greatest military minds, one of the greatest conquerors, and uh, leaders, I guess, that we could say here. And whenever he died, no one cared. And so as he was on his deathbed, they asked him and said, who is it that's going to reign after you? He had no heir. He had no successor. He had no plan of succession. He was still young, and he was bent on conquering further. And so whenever they asked him, who's going to have the kingdom after you're gone, his words were the strongest. That's a good leader for you, isn't it? He said, whoever's the strongest will be the one who ends up being the kingdom or the king. And so basically he said, you all can fight for it. I don't care. I'm dying. And so whenever he's dead, before he's even in the ground, his four generals take over. And you notice what it says there in uh, verse number 22. It says, now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation but not in his power. And so this is what happened to the nation of Greece, to the empire of Greece. When Alexander the Great was dead, his four generals took it. They separated it up into four different parts, to the east, west, north, and south, and each had their part. And then that started off a long period of civil war, basically. These four generals and their four kingdoms were constantly fighting for mastery over one another. They were trying to take over each other's part and to reunite it back and become the next Alexander the Great. None of them had that to happen. Okay, But it says in verse 23, in the latter time uh, of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. If we go back to verse number uh, verse number 9, it says, and out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great 
toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And so those two verses go together. Out of one of those four generals, out of their kingdom that they established, was going to arise another ruler. And history tells us about this. This is something we can go back, even in secular history, we can study out what happened. And this was the, the kingdom of Syria. Uh, I had read through and looked at all the different names and figured you guys would probably uh, uh, go to sleep on me if I got too deep into the history, right? But anyway, uh, with this, out of the, the kingdom of Syria arose a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Anyone ever heard that name? Some of you have? Well, Antiochus Epiphanes lived and reigned or ruled around 170 BC. And what he did, he was in the Syria region, he was near Israel, and he started to expand, it says here, toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. The pleasant land there is a reference to Israel, to the promised land. And so that was where he was expanding his kingdom to the south and to the east and toward the pleasant land, toward Israel. And it says in verse 10, And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. So just a little bit of thinking here. Where do we find the Bible talking about the sun and the moon and the stars uh, in regards to something that would tie into this prophecy. Any ideas? Never. Maybe, but what people are identified with the sun and the moon and the stars? Mm-hmm. So if you go back to Genesis, Joseph has a dream, and in the dream, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars, yeah, eleven stars, bow down to him. With Abraham, his seed are going to be as the stars of heaven for multitude. And so this little horn, this king of Syria, uh, this man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to be pressing toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. He's going to wax gray, even to the host of heaven. He is going to proclaim himself to be deity, basically. And the name Antiochus Epiphanes basically means God manifest. He took this name upon himself. He put the name Epiphanes upon himself and said, I am God made known unto man. And we're going to find that he is a pre-runner. He is a type or a figure of the Antichrist. And a lot of the things that he did are on a smaller scale of what the Antichrist will do during the time of the tribulation period. Okay, And so he had an extreme hatred for the people of Israel. Uh, he was so crazy, if you will, that even his own people had a nickname for him. Instead of Antiochus Epiphanes, they called him uh, Antiochus uh, Epimenes, I think is what it was, which basically means Antiochus the Mad, the Crazy. Because it sounded very close to what he was calling himself. And so instead of being God revealed, he was crazy. He was mad. And he was power man. And so anyway, he was going to wax great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground. That is him persecuting the Jews, persecuting the Israelites and stamping upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the princes of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him, and the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. And so what Antiochus Epiphanes did was that he came into Israel, he came into Jerusalem, and he he actually had made a, an agreement with one of the men of Israel, a corrupt man in Israel, which led him in the gates, into the gates of the city. He slaughtered about 40,000 people in Jerusalem, and they took about another 40,000 uh, as slaves and sold them into slavery. That's what he did. He went into the temple. He set up a statue to the god Zeus. 
He demanded everyone worship it. He made the God of Israel illegal and the worship of God illegal. And then he set up a uh, uh, an altar in the temple grounds and sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. Now we all know that uh, a pig was an unclean animal according to the law and according to the Jews. And so what he did was he completely desecrated the holy city and the holy temple and the holy people. He set up for himself uh, false priests and false worship. He forced the people to eat pork and to bow down to false images and false idols. And so that's what he did in Israel. He was a maniac. And he took it out on the Jews more than anyone else, mainly because Babylon solved their idolatry and they refused to worship him and to worship his gods. And so he says, well, I'm going to come in. I'm going to make an example out of them. And he persecuted the people of God. And these are things that we can go back and read in history. But these are things that had happened some 250 years after Daniel wrote about them. Even down to the desecration of the temple, the taking away of the daily sacrifices and things. But then when we, when we come down to verse 13, it says, Then I heard one, one saint speaking to another saint. Whenever we get down to, I think it's verse 16, it makes it clear that this is an angel. Okay. Then I heard one saint speaking to another saint. Uh, and another saint said unto uh, that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And so going back in history again, from the time that Antiochus Epiphanes gave over uh, the priesthood to his own men, profaned the priesthood, and he gave the priesthood, I believe it was to the man who led him into Jerusalem, okay? So from the time that he profaned the priesthood to the day that uh, Judas Maccabees, during the Maccabean revolt, cleansed the temple was, guess how many days? 2,300 days. You go back in history, you can find the dates that both of these things happen, okay? 2,300 days in between the two of them. And Daniel wrote about it some 250 years before it happened. Maybe more than that. It may have been 350. And so anyway, verse 15, it says, And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then, behold, there stood before me as the appearance of this is Daniel wondering about what all these things mean. And I've already went down to where they uh, gave him the understanding here, where God had sent him someone to tell him about it in verses 19 through 23. But we can go ahead and continue down in verse number 24. I don't think I've read it yet. I'll go ahead to 23. It says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressions are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, and understanding of dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. So in this, we're seeing that behind this man was the power of Satan. He wasn't strong by himself. He was empowered by something else, not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper. So through his ingenuity, through his intelligence, he is going to be able to work great deceits. That's what that's saying. Because his craft prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. Now that was partially fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, whenever he was able to, through diplomacy and making deals, come right into the city and overthrow it without having to actually attack it. He just marched in the middle of it and destroyed it. But... Like I said, Antiochus Epiphanes is only a figure, a type of the one that's yet to come. And we find that the Bible's talking back in Daniel chapter number 7 of the little horn that comes up out of one of the ten horns of Rome in the last days. And we talked about that being the Antichrist uh, last week, I believe. 
And so Antiochus Epiphanes was a different horn. He was coming from the Greeks and not from the Romans, but he was a type, he was a picture, he was a foreshadowing of what would come. And so some of these things that we're reading here are things that we're going to find line up very well with the Antichrist in the last days. And so by peace he shall destroy many, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes, that is him standing against the Lord himself. Antiochus Epiphanes was a blasphemer, he was one that railed against God, but then the Antichrist even more so is going to be blaspheming and literally stand against Christ. But he shall be broken without hand. History tells us what happened to Antiochus Epiphanes. He died insane. He didn't die a natural death. He didn't die in battle. He went crazy and died in his insanity. And so in verse 26, it says, And the vision of the evening and of the morning which was told is true. Wherefore shut up, or shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the, at the vision, but none understood it. So at the end of this chapter, Daniel was physically sick. He was physically tired because of the visions that he had. Because think of this, Daniel was in captivity. He was a Jew in Babylon. He knew that the Babylonian captivity was going to be for 70 years. He had the promise of deliverance that God was going to lead them out of Babylon. But then God has just revealed to him that there's going to be a lot that happens before the one that they're looking for, before the Messiah comes, before the Lord rules and reigns. There's still going to be uh, three more kingdoms that come along. And on top of that, there's going to be this madman, Antiochus Epiphanes, this little horn that comes out of Grecia, that is going to persecute the Jews, that's going to kill many of them for a time. And so why is he sick? Why is he tired? Why is this going on? He is burdened because he's seeing that things are going to carry on for a long time, that there is a long time before deliverance, that there is more pain and destruction and more judgment, that his people aren't going to learn their lesson, and that they're going to have to wait for even longer before God's deliverance. Now, with us living here today, we can see that a lot of these things have already came to pass. We have a lot more things that's been revealed to us. We know that God is going to deliver the, the church. He's going to deliver the Christians before this time of the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation and his wrath and his judgment being uh, released upon this earth. But we find that the time of the Great Tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. It is a time whenever uh, the affairs of this world turn from the church back to Israel like it was back then. And so Daniel is seeing all of these truths and all these things that's going to happen to his people, and he's greatly burdened and he's greatly troubled by it. Okay, and so this brings this sickness upon them, this tiredness upon him. And so it took him a little while and he recovered from it. But remember I said that he was probably uh, in his 90s by this time, or at least his late 80s. He would have been an old man by now. So it took a lot out of him. But anyway, just a little bit to tie all this together here at this end. We saw that this is, uh, as I said, Medo-Persian and Greek empires, how they were going to rule, the characteristics of them, uh, how the, the transition was going to take place from the Persians to the Greeks, uh, how the power was going to move from the east to the west, and how they were going to deal with the people of Israel. But I said that this Antiochus Epiphanes and this little horn was a type and was a shadow of the Antichrist, okay? And so I just want to go through a few things that they have uh, in common, a few things that they have in similarity here. And I've got references for all this, but I'll probably wear you out if I keep going back and forth. If you want to go to Revelation chapter 13 and just hold a finger there, a lot of the passages I have come from there. But I want you to see this, that the Bible is very specific, tells us what's going to happen ahead of time. And so we can kind of have a, a bit of a sneak peek in that. 
but just as the things that Daniel wrote that's occurred from his time to our time, the things that's going to happen still yet after our time are just as dependable. They're going to happen. So uh, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse number 9 that we were at, it says that, uh, and out of them, out of one came uh, forth a little horn which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the west to the pleasant land. So this is the idea that he is going to be expanding his empire. He's going to be conquering much. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4. Uh, and it says, And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And so the context of that in Revelation chapter 13, it is that the Antichrist has raised up his armies. He has increased his power. He has taken over essentially the world and he has established a one world government. Uh, all the nations have fell before him and the ones that he hasn't fought against have given up willingly and surrendered to him, saying this in verse number four, who is able to make war with him? Who can stand before him because of his power and his ability to conquer? And so we see a relation between these two. Daniel chapter eight and verse 11 it says, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15, still talking about the Antichrist. It says, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So both of them were magnifying self to the place where they were receiving worship. Uh, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 25, it says, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And so the idea of him having uh, craft prosper in his hand, he is a master of deceit. In, and I told you to turn to Revelation if you want to hold there just a minute. I'm going to go to Second uh, Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse number 10. And it says, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Uh, go back to verse number nine on that if you're there. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all wonder or with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness. Once again, talking about the Antichrist there. It's saying that it's going to be a master of deception. Uh, Daniel 8.25 talks about having the false peace plan that he's going to uh, prosper through peace. Uh, and then we see that again in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And then we'll see it in Daniel chapter 9 where we get to it. 1 Thessalonians five and verses 2 and 3. It says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction uh, cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. It says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even to the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. And so Daniel 9.27 is talking about the Antichrist is going to uh, make a peace treaty. He's going to, uh, in the middle of that, break his treaty. He's going to cause himself to be worshipped. He's going to desecrate the temple by setting himself up as a god. And so that's going to happen. That's all future tense still. Uh, but it is pictured by Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, just for the, the sake of time and everybody's interest, I'll just read down through these instead of flipping to each one of them. But uh, in addition to these things, he's going to persecute Israel. That's what the time of Jacob's trouble is going to be in. Uh, profane the temple, we talked about that in 927, uh, that they are both of Satan. Uh, that's going to be their source. They're going to be empowered by him. They'll defile the temple. They're going to speak great blasphemies. 
And in the end, they were both destroyed by God. We know that the Antichrist uh, is going to be literally destroyed by Christ as he comes in his power and sets up his kingdom. And as I said, Antiochus Epiphanes died completely insane. And so as we see all of these things here, uh, I know I've kind of ran through them fairly quickly, but my point in all of this is showing that God revealed to Daniel hundreds of years before these events happened, before these succession of kingdoms that we can go back and study in world history, that some of us even taught in school systems and such today, that Daniel was able to prophesy and tell about it. He told about Alexander the Great. Just uh, one thing that I forgot as I was going through there is that um, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, I don't know if you all have heard of him or not, but the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that whenever Alexander the Great was going on his conquest and conquering, he came to Jerusalem to destroy it. And one of the temple priests met him in all of his priestly uh, apparel out of the temple, came to him, meet, met him at the gates of the city, and brought to him Daniel the prophet's writings. And he opened up to Daniel chapter number 8, and he let Alexander the Great read it. And it told of Alexander the Great's conquest, and he saw himself in it. He saw that his defeat of the Medes and the Persians was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. And Josephus says that Alexander the Great fell down and worshipped and then spared the city. And so that's something written down in history. And so this was the effect that it had on Alexander. So we're reading about it thousands of years past. This was Alexander reading about it as it was happening, and he recognized it and said it was of God. Okay? And so Daniel wrote about it long before it happened. It all came to pass just like God had revealed it to him. And so as we are reading scripture today and we read prophecy concerning end times events, we can take heart and know it's going to happen just like God said that it would. Okay? Daniel said here at the end of chapter number 8 that none understood it. We can look back on some of it. We can understand parts of it. We still don't understand it all. But it's going to be fulfilled just as God said. God's word is accurate. His plan is certain, and we as Christians need to accept it by faith. We need to take heart in knowing that God is in control, and we have a great reassurance that what we believe is true. A lot of people equate faith to being a blind faith or as a shot in the dark. They think that faith means that there is no evidence, no proof, that you just believe it completely blindly. But that's not a biblical faith. God says, try me. He says in different places, prove me. He says that there are things that back up what we believe. He doesn't want us to just take a shot in the dark. He doesn't want us just to believe it blindly. But instead, he says, let me show you that my word is true. Let me put proofs and evidences in this. Let me show you that what you believe isn't just a shot in the dark, but instead it is something that you can build your life and your hope and your eternity on. And that's part of what this prophecy is. And so with that, I better end tonight. Does anyone have any questions or comments on what we've looked at tonight? Nobody? Yeah, the reason why they were referred to as animals is that uh, Dan excuse me, Daniel was getting a glimpse of how God saw these kingdoms and these empires. Whenever um, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about these empires back in chapter 2 of Daniel, he saw it as this great polished statue of shining metals and uh, great artwork and whatnot. That was man's perspective of it. They look at the kingdoms and they see the power and the prestige and the, the success and all of those things. God looks at it and he sees that they are as ravaging beasts, that they are uh, uh, cruel and they are harmful and hateful and disfigured. And uh, so it's kind of a, an eye of the beholder type thing. So from man looking on, he's like, oh, look at the power and the prestige. Look at the... But 
then if you can step back from it and see it from God's perspective, God says this is a mess. Okay. And so for an idea of this, maybe this is a good illustration, maybe it's a bad one, okay? You all can decide. But imagine if you were in close proximity to Adolf Hitler back in 1940, okay? Imagine if you were in his upper echelon and you were looking at his empire that he had built and how people were so loyal to him and how the land was prospering, you would say that it was a great thing, right? How do people refer to Hitler today? Okay. A good a good description of Hitler, he was an animal. He was a monster, right? And so why does the Bible describe these kings and these empires as beasts and ravaging animals? Because that is God's perspective looking down on it and saying, there's nothing beautiful about it. They are... Uh, bloodthirsty and cruel and harmful and and wicked. Whenever man would look at it and say, look at what power and prestige, look at how we're amassing lands and we're conquering lands. And all. That was the, the reason behind that. Just as a, maybe a little funny anecdote on that one, you look at Nebuchadnezzar, what did God do to him whenever he was lifted up with pride? He turned him into an animal, right? He made his actions and his activities and his looks match his character. So could you imagine what it would be like if we as human beings, if our appearance reflected our heart? You ever seen someone who was really pretty till you got to know them? That's what happened with these kingdoms. It's a look into their heart. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we do thank you for this passage and your word. I know uh, oftentimes prophecy can get uh, a little heavy, a little tedious, Lord. I pray that that hasn't happened here tonight, Lord. But I pray that we can truly see that, uh, uh, that your word prophesied it predicted things that happened they came to pass we can take heart that your word is true and lord that you're in charge and lord that in our lives we can apply that to our lives and know that still your word is true and that you're in charge lord we just ask you be with us throughout this week help us be a light and a witness for you and lord thank you for all you do in jesus name i pray amen